I'm, I'm going to ask you to look at a couple different passages. One's in Isaiah, one's in um, Psalms. We're going to begin with Isaiah 9. And uh, as uh, usual, there is a Bible app for this message, so you can follow along if you'd like there. Isaiah 9 is where we're going to be. Isaiah, of course, was written seven centuries before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And you think, so how's that a Christmas passage? Um, well, it is because it's talking, it's predicting Jesus' birth 700 years before it actually occurred. The text we're going to read in a few minutes is uh, well known uh, through history um, because of a gentleman named George Friedrich Handel. He was a guy that had a nice powdered wig, a British uh, composer kind of guy, and he wrote something called The Messiah. You may know the Hallelujah Chorus, Hallelujah, you know that? That's uh, from The Messiah. Uh, in the midst of that uh, piece, there's uh, quotes from Isaiah chapter 9, where it says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called, it says in the music, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. We're going to be reading from that in a few minutes. But before we look at our text, I want to talk to you a little bit about what you see when you look in the mirror. Uh, Some time ago, I happened to notice that Facebook allowed me to look at my Facebook page or stream from the perspective of someone that didn't know me, that wasn't my friend. What does everybody see when they look at Facebook? That's kind of a handy thing, because then you can check your privacy, whatever you want to do. Um, everything I put on Facebook, I make public. So that makes me real careful that I don't say anything that I expect to be private. And I use Facebook as a tool to speak. Uh, but at that time, I wasn't doing it uh, so much as a tool to speak. And so I began to scroll through my Facebook page. And as I did that, I kind of thought, how do other people see me? What does Steve Shields look like from the outside? And as I scrolled through there, I realized that there were some things there that I didn't want to be there, things that I had put there that maybe you would call them cynical statements. Do I want people to see me as cynical? Maybe you would think of them as opinionated perspectives. Is that how I want to come across? There were some uncaring things that I put there. And because evidently from time to time my brain just completely shuts down, I even put some political stuff there. Putting political stuff on Facebook is evidence I'm not going to go there. <laughs> and so I thought to myself, I thought, is this how I want people to see me? And so I went through my Facebook and spent maybe a half an hour deleting, deleting, deleting. And then I felt pretty good about the way I looked. My social media presence looks the way I want it to look. Now, if you're a thinking person, you're saying, well, you know what you did? You just covered up who you really are by deleting those posts. And you would be right. And because I'm a thinking person, I knew that. And so I went a little further. The look in the mirror that my Facebook page gave me allowed me to kind of look in my heart. And I saw there's some cynicism there, and there's some opinionated stuff there, and there's some, there's some uncaringness there in my heart. And so after the simple process of deleting things from Facebook, I turned my attention to the deeper process of correcting some inner attitudes, some sinful attitudes in my own heart, taking them to the cross of Christ, asking the Holy Spirit to show them to me, and asking him to delete them. That kind of thing only comes through reflection. You really can't begin to evaluate yourself and look at yourself unless you're willing to look in the mirror. That's why the Apostle Paul, when he's talking about the Lord's Supper, he says, One ought to examine oneself before eating the bread or drinking a cup. This self-examination, this looking into the mirror, 
That's not a bad thing for us to be doing from time to time. Now, this holiday season, we are going to consider how the holiday itself actually influences us. And, and I want to look at these reflections and kind of have a, a feeling for maybe what mindset the Christmas season creates in us that might not be as good as it should be. Because the fact is, sometimes the Christmas can make us into people we don't want to be. And sometimes we don't know about that unless we look in the mirror. We don't know who we are. We don't know what we're doing. In Jesus' day, the people there seemed, many of them just seemed pretty clueless. You know what John says about the birth of Christ? He just says, he came unto his own, and his own received him not. How do you do that? How do you be a person who needs what Jesus has to offer, who professes to be looking for what Jesus is bringing, and then when Jesus shows up in person, you're just unaware of what he can do for you? Part of the answer to that is, they really didn't know who they were because they weren't looking at themselves. But Christmas is really all about discovery. It's about discovering who you are and who Jesus is. And when you awaken to those things, then you kind of fit in with how the Scripture says the people living in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death. A new light has dawned. That light is Jesus. Now, when Matthew writes those things in Matthew 4, he's actually quoting from the passage that you and I are going to read right now. It's Isaiah chapter 9. It's seven verses long. Listen as I read it. Follow along as I read it. Nevertheless, there'll be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in a day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them and the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And the greatness of his government, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom and establish and uphold it with justice and righteousness. From that time on forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. I want to back up and read those last two verses again. Listen to him again. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. You know, that's Jesus. And the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Prince of Peace, of his peace, <laughs> there will be no end. Don't you long for that? I long for that, personally. Uh, what's ironic is that when we celebrate this birth of the Prince of Peace at Christmas, we realize Christmas itself can actually be a little overwhelming. And Christmas itself can actually kind of change who we are, and not always in a good way. I mean, on the Christmas specials, the, those Hallmark things, 
Christmas always changes people in a good way. But all of us know that one person who during the holidays, you just need to kind of stand back, right? Because I'm not sure what they turn into because they're trying to do some Christmas thing and it's just not going. And uh, they're going to do what they're going to do and they're going to become who they don't want to become. Why does that happen to them? Why does that happen to you and me? Does it? I I think uh, there are a lot of explanations, but one of them is Christmas itself can be an overwhelming time of year. We can be overwhelmed with activities. You know, there's the party with the people from work, and there's the shopping trip with your best friends, and there's the dinner with your family, and the gathering with the people from school, and there's the trip to camp, and the neighborhood cookie exchange, and all of that is scheduled this week, you know? And it feels a little bit overwhelming. Here's what kind of always blows my mind. It always has since I was a child. Sometimes we're so busy with those social activities in the Christmas season, we don't have time to focus on Jesus, the central figure of Christmas. How's that healthy for us? It's not. It's actually overwhelming to us. We can be overwhelmed with activities. We can be overwhelmed with obligation. If you've ever talked to someone, they say, I just don't like Christmas. There's a good chance the reason they don't like Christmas is because Christmas comes with obligations. I have to get the, just the right gift for dad and mom. That's an obligation. I have to get just the right gift for my wife. Last year, she didn't like that exercise tape I got her. I got to think of something else. Obligation. We have to get just the right gift for our children. What's the fad gift this year? And what if we don't get that for little Willis? Obligation. We have to get just the right gift for our grandkids. Well, that's a new one for me. Obligation. I don't know who I was talking to. It could have been someone from church here, but I remember this well-intentioned person. I told her how stressful Christmas is for me because I just never know what to get my wife and other people that I love. And, and I, it was so funny. So she looked at me and she said, oh, Steve, I can help you with that. Just look at what they're interested in and observe that and then buy them something that fits with that. Yeah, go for that. <laughs> And really, she didn't give me any help at all. What she just said is, this obligation that you feel a little overwhelmed by is nothing. It's easy. That didn't help, right? And so these obligations we just, just feel can sometimes overwhelm us at Christmas time. There's a third thing that can overwhelm us. Compassion. Now stay with me here, because this can be a little hard to understand at first. Christmas comes in our minds with a sense that things ought to be a certain way. Like we feel at Christmas time, no one should ever be alone. And we feel at Christmas time that people should not be in need. And we feel at Christmas time that no one should ever be sad or sorrowing. And we have compassion for that. And that compassion can be a weight. It can be heavy. It can be difficult to carry. We should feel compassion for others, not just at Christmas, but all year round. But we all know that compassion weighs heavy in the heart and contributes to this feeling of being overwhelmed. So here we are singing, joy to the world, I am overwhelmed because of Christmas. So when you look in a mirror, do you see that person that's a little overwhelmed? If you do, turn to Psalm 40. We're going to read just a few verses from Psalm 40. We're going to actually kind of take these verses apart and draw a sort of a roadmap to help us move from feeling overwhelmed to feeling overjoyed from the words here in Psalm 40. Psalm 40 begins, it's it's kind of like a testimony here at the beginning. And it begins with the writer saying, I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me up out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. 
He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in Him. Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord. It doesn't look to the proud, to those who turn aside to false gods. Many, Lord, my God, are the wonders you have done. The things you planned for us, none can compare with you. Were I to speak and tell of all your deeds, there'd be too many to declare. Now, when I think of this psalm, when you think of this psalm, it actually does give you instructions or a roadmap on how to move from being overwhelmed to overjoyed. And it sounds to me like the first marker on that journey is a marker that says, go ahead and cry. It's right there in verse 1. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my what? My cry. Cry out to God. And that may be, when you're overwhelmed, it may be a cry that's accompanied by tears or not. It doesn't matter. What what it needs to be, if it's going to be of service to you and moving you from feeling overwhelmed to overjoyed, then you need to have a means whereby you can communicate to God an emotional message that you need help. Cry out to God. You need to be able to give a spiritual acknowledgement to God I can't help myself. You need to personally be humble enough to say, I am stuck here and I don't want to be overwhelmed. I want to be something different. And if you want to transition from feeling overwhelmed to overjoyed, then maybe the first thing to do is when you look in the mirror, cry out to God and say, God, this is not where I want to be. There's more though uh, in this roadmap of moving from being overwhelmed to overjoyed. The second one is the four-letter word that I think all of us don't like. Wait, right? The, set, the first verb in, in verse 1 there is wait. I waited patiently for the Lord. He waited how? He, he waited patiently. I hate waiting. I get that from my father. One time, my, my parents had loaned us a sum of money to buy our cottage at Mahaffey Camp, and we paid them back. I had a, a spreadsheet laid out. We paid them back with the same interest they would have gotten had they kept that money in their CD. It was good for them. It was good for, well, it was good for us. It was okay for them. When we got to the end, they gave us the interest back, and they said we would never take interest from our kids. You know, That was dad and mom. So I said, let's take this interest and go to Niagara Falls and just have a good time. And so we did. We left Bradford, Pennsylvania. We went up to Niagara Falls and we got to the Peace Bridge and it was shut down. There it was. We sat there and waited for like an hour and a half. I thought my dad was going to blow a gasket. He was out of his mind. And he looked at me and said, you're a better man than me. I would be all the way back to Bradford by now. And I thought, I grew up with you. I know that. (laughs) I know that. Because none of us like to wait. But something I've found about God is he's not afraid to make me wait. And it's not because he's on a power trip or something. It's because there's some kind of virtue in waiting. The fact is that waiting shows respect. When, when you're cooking, okay, if you're cooking a, a dinner there, this happens every Thanksgiving. And there's that guy, you know, the turkey junkie, like on A Christmas Story, Ralphie's dad. And he's trying to reach in and he's getting that turkey. You're cooking it. You're going to put it on the table in a few minutes. But he's just got to have some now. And I'm not sure about A Christmas Story, but I know I've been slapped with a spatula before when I've done that sort of thing. And the reason why is because it fails to show respect to the person who's preparing for you that which they want to give to you. 
Waiting. It shows respect. Moreover, waiting shows appreciation for timing. <clears throat> Sometimes timing is everything. Have you ever known that guy who just can't tell a joke? Oh boy, he just can't tell a joke. Chances are he doesn't understand timing. Because timing is part of humor. Have you ever known someone who tried to help you when your heart was hurting and they made it worse? Chances are part of the reason is they just didn't understand timing. And when God makes us wait, it's because he understands timing. He's probably doing something in the psalmist's heart here, and timing is an important factor in it. And so the psalmist says, I waited patiently. And waiting is often essential in what God might be doing in your life. Third, waiting gives you a chance to grow. When you find yourself in a holding pattern, God has you waiting. That's a moment for you to say, okay, God, why? Why? Not like, why are you doing this to me, God? But why are you doing this to me? What, what is it that you're trying to form in me? What character qualities are you wanting to build in my life? What maturity levels are you wanting to tweak in my life? How can I benefit from this holding pattern that I'm in? How can I grow? You see, if when you look in the mirror, you see a picture of someone who's overwhelmed, then waiting patiently for God and taking advantage of that time with him can help you move from being overwhelmed to overjoyed. By the way, you are moving. That's really the third thing I see in this psalm is you're taking action, so to speak. The the psalmist here is going to be moving from bondage to freedom. Look at verse 2. It says, He lifted me up out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. So God reaches out to you, and when he does, move toward him. Move toward him. How? By reaching up toward him. Okay, now let me give you some imagery here. Most scholars feel that the language here is talking, when it talks of a pit, it's talking probably about something that was originally designed to be a cistern. You know, in the in ancient Near East, it's pretty dry. And so collecting water was important to do, and they couldn't build water towers, so they dug pits to put water in. And those were stone-lined, they were dug in stone often, and, and there they were to hold the, the water. They eventually became used at times to hold prisoners. Joseph, when he was thrown into that pit, you know, the guy with the coat of many colors, (laughs) there he is in that pit. There's a good chance that that was this kind of a pit that had been sort of a cistern. Jeremiah finds himself in a literal cistern, and, and a cistern was used as a prison from the days of Jeremiah through the days of Christ, probably before and after. From the inside, when you're looking up out of it, it would look kind of like this. I don't know, Vernon, Sharon, if you remember, but we saw one of those in Israel. I have a picture of myself sitting in the bottom of it in Israel. Yeah, The guy in Israel, when he was talking to us, and other scholars said this as well, that those pits were not, when they became prisons, they were not maintained well. And so they were filled with moisture, with some water, with some mud, with some refuse, human, animal, excrement, the bones of animals, and perhaps even people who had been, who'd fallen in or been put in there. And so there you are. You might even be up to your waist in this muck and mire. I waited patiently for the Lord. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. How do you get out of that? The only way to get out of that kind of a pit that you're looking at on the screen, the only way to get out of that kind of pit is for someone to throw you a rope. You're not going to get out on your own. Someone has to throw you a rope. And unless you take hold of that rope, reach up and grab it, you're going to stay right there. Here's what I want you to hear. 
when you're feeling overwhelmed, you probably want to cry out to God. And when, along the pathway from being overwhelmed to overjoyed, you're crying out to him, you're probably going to need to wait because there's something he wants to do in you. And then eventually, he will throw you a lifeline. Reach out and take it. That's how you move from bondage to freedom. Don't just sit there feeling overwhelmed. Don't be angry that you've had to wait this long. When he throws you the lifeline, grab it, because that will move you from lamentation to praise. Wow, that's an archaic way to say that, isn't it? Lamentation? Yeah. It moves you from singing the blues to singing songs of praise. And that's why verse 3 says that God put a new song in his mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Okay, so you may be saying, all right, Pastor Steve, you make it sound so easy. But how in the world do I, when I'm overwhelmed, even begin the journey to being overjoyed? How do I do this? And the answer is you choose to trust. You choose to trust. Do you have trust issues? (laughs) Guess what? We all do. (laughs) Have you noticed on the way to Kerwinsville, or Clearfield rather from here, between Clearfield and Kerwinsville, uh, a couple weeks ago, R.J. Corman was rebuilding that bridge. Did you drive underneath that when they were rebuilding that bridge? I, I want to tell you, I'm, I'm driving underneath that bridge. I drive that passage a lot. And the workers are up on top. The flagmen are down below. We're going one, one lane or whatever. And as I'm going under that and I see these guys on top of me, I just have this irrational fear that one of them's going to drop a tool right when I go through, right? And, and so, and I'm literally, this is so, this is so Steve. I'm literally, as I'm going, I'm going like this. Like that's going to help if I'm hunched down, you know, right? <laughs> but, but, but here's what I didn't do. In spite of my concern, I didn't drive around that piece of highway. I went ahead and drove through. Do you know why? It was a choice. It was a choice to trust that those workers wouldn't drop their tools. Listen, hear this. Trust is always a choice. You always choose to trust or you choose not to trust. That's why verse 4 says, Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord. Let me just paraphrase that. Blessed is the one who makes the choice to trust that God's going to deliver him. Is a choice for you. And, and we choose to trust the Lord because nothing else will do. No one else will do. I'm going to tell you right now that God is the only certainty in your life. He's the only certainty in your life. When, when David speaks of looking to the proud, he's talking about looking to people who consider themselves winners and other people consider these are the guys, these are the guys. David says trusting in them isn't what pulled him out of the pit. What pulled him out of the pit was trusting in God. And by the way, there's no evidence that David at this time in his life or any other time in his life was literally in a cistern. And so David, I don't believe at all, is speaking about being physically trapped in a cistern. David is talking about being in a pit of despair. David is talking about profound depression. He's talking about a spiritually dark time when he waited patiently on the Lord and he cried out to him and waited and was delivered. And in those times of despair, of despondency, of depression, of feeling overwhelmed, that's when you need to choose to trust because nothing else will do. And you can trust the Lord because he does great things. Look at verse 5. In verse 5, it says, Many, Lord my God, are the wonders you have done, that's past tense, and the things you planned for us, that is, present and future as well. 
In other words, God is planning things for you right now regarding your future. And they're many. They're countless. You are on His mind. My children are adults with families of their own. Both my kids. Do you know how often I think of them? Every day. Every day. All day. They're always on my mind. That's part of being a good father or a good mother. You are always on your heavenly Father's mind. And He is planning great things for you. There's nothing, nothing to compare with Him. You can trust Him. And in fact, when you're feeling overwhelmed, trusting that God is going to take care of things and He has good things planned for you, that's, that's a wise choice to make right there. Choose to trust that God does great things. Elsewhere in Scripture in the New Testament, it says, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, the heart has not imagined what God has prepared for those who love them. Love Him, rather. For those who love Him. I would like to tell you exactly what God has planned for you. It's so cool. I'm going to tell you exactly what it is, but honestly, I can't even imagine it. I don't have that capacity. It's more than you can imagine that God has planned for you. And if you want to move from feeling overwhelmed to feeling overjoyed, then understand your good, good father has good, good things planned for you. You can trust him because the only overwhelmed he wants for you is for you to be overwhelmed with joy. That's exactly what is meant by those final words in verse 5 when it says, were I to speak and tell of your deeds, they would be too many to declare. I am just overwhelmed, God, when I think about all the good things you've done and all the good things you're going to do. And I trust you. I choose to trust. Have you ever been looking through some old pictures? You know, like maybe you get out that drawer where... I don't know if you guys know this, some of you younger guys, pictures used to be on paper. It was kind of neat, okay? And, and you're flipping through that, or you're flipping through, Google does this, Facebook does it too. Five years ago, you know, here's these pictures. And you're flipping through those pictures, whether they're on your phone or on, on, on paper, maybe Thanksgiving pictures or some other, and you look at yourself and you go, oh man, I look terrible. I just look exhausted there. I look so out of it there. I look overwhelmed there. Sometimes it's good to take a look at yourself, your reflection, your image, and see who you are. The Apostle Paul says one ought to examine oneself before eating the bread or drinking the cup. This week, if you're on any social media at all, scroll through your last few posts. I mean, just go ahead and look through them. What do they say about you? Is that what you want them to say about you? Is that who you are? Is that who you want to be? Look at the reflection that Facebook shows you. Or if you're not on social media, it's going to be a little harder, but how about going back to the last half a dozen phone conversations you've had with good friends? The content of those. Dr. Sovine, who was a preaching professor at Toccoa Falls, said at one time, he said to his church family that he, one of them had worked, worked for the phone company and he had arranged with them to listen in on their conversations that week. Yeah, their eyes got huge, right? What if someone that you wanted to show that you were good was able to hear those phone conversations? Is that who I want to be? Is that, the, is that who I am? What needs to change in my life? 
Or think about the conversation you had with a good friend at work or over coffee or during break or whatever and say, is that who I should be? A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. Do that. Do that this week, but do that personally now. And when you see something there that you find displeasing to yourself, take it to Christ. Go to the cross and say, God, that is not who I want to be. Forgive me for that. Spirit of God, help me to delete that from the essence of who Steve Shields is. You delete it, Jesus, and make me into a different person. And as you allow that to happen, as you choose to trust, you will move from being overwhelmed to overjoyed.